Hi, my name is Amanda. I have been working in Rwanda for the last eight years with an organization called Hope for Life. Hope for Life is an organization that is focused on helping youth to escape homelessness and build stronger families. Eight years ago when I went to Rwanda, I knew that there was poverty. The last two years have shown me that it is becoming extreme poverty. I've seen that the marginal populations that we work with, I've seen their struggles continue to amplify. I'll never forget there was a day that I walked out of the office to go like get water or something. And when I had walked out of the office, there was these three boys asleep in the grass. Your heart breaks because you're like, these kids should not be sleeping outside. They should be in a home with family. Those three kids, like, fortunately enough, we were able to bring them in. I'll never forget the day they were so excited to come. It was three of them and their best friend. As we're leaving, he's coming to me and he's saying, Amanda, Nanje, Nanje. And I'm like, I just start crying because Nanje means and me. He was just saying, and me. <laughs> and I had to go home that night and just sit with it and be like, you know, as exciting and amazing as it is that those three are off the streets. When I go to sleep tonight, the only pe person that I can think of is Samuel, who's saying, and me, Amanda, please. Like, I'll never forget that moment. There will always be a Samuel, and I know that like for me personally, I was put on this earth for those boys. Like I, I know that that is my calling is to those kids. The joy is seeing them go from like this survival mode basically into the center where they're then able to like, all their needs are met and they get to start discovering who they are. It's just amazing to see their childhood like restored in so many ways. In 2019, we partnered with Chapel Street on an expansion project. So it included two buildings. One was a rehabilitation center that would increase our residents by another 25 bed spots. And the other was uh, facilities on site for our staff. This is for the therapist, for our caseworkers, social workers, so that we would all be together on site. So we started construction at the beginning of 2020 and were met with significant challenges. Anything from brick shortages, supply delays. We were only allowed to operate with 30% on site labor wise. So as you can imagine, that slowed down our timeline significantly. We currently are about 80% finished. The hope is that in the next six to eight months, we finish the project. We are so excited to have that project done so we can start bringing in new youth over the next year. With the number of kids we're seeing go to the streets, I say more than ever, Hope for Life is needed in Rwanda. And one thing that I'm super grateful about is that we started a construction project in 2019 without even knowing what the need was gonna be, right? We're literally building a new building all while we're seeing the need continue to grow and grow and grow. And to be so grateful that God was already making a way even when we didn't know like, what the need was. I'm so excited that Hope for Life does this work and that we continue to have partners like Chapel Street that make it possible. There's just so many boys who are so grateful and families for, for the work that Hope for Life does.
I love getting to see those videos. It's uh, not the first one that we've seen of Amanda or Hope for Life, and it always is so humbling uh, just to see what we as a church family get to be a part of, what God's inviting us to contribute to and to support and pray for. Uh, and I love in that video where Amanda says that she knows that her purpose was to be put on this earth for those boys, that she knows it's her calling, that God has sent her to those boys. Uh, and you know, it's our calling together as the whole people of God to continue doing the Lord's work in all the earth. And so it's wonderful that this small church in Geneva, Illinois, gets to be a part of so many different stories. If you don't know, we have a whole host of Share the World part- or, um, Serve the World partners uh, and groups all around the world that we get to be a part of praying for and supporting. Uh, and so we'd invite you to, at some point, get to know those. Uh, you can talk to Pastor Bruce or any of us. We'd love to tell you some of the stories uh, of our different partners around the earth. But uh, it is amazing that, again, this small group of people here in Geneva, Illinois, can be a part of a global movement of, of sorts. And if I was to ask you this morning, if you were to design your own global movement, if you wanted to impact all of planet Earth, how would you design that? How would you put that together? Perhaps you would start by getting some money. You're going to need a lot of money to be able to do it. Maybe you're going to want the right kind of people, and so you will go to colleges, universities, you'll find the experts in the field, you'll find the most intelligent, most gifted, most creative. Maybe you're going to need a lot of different resources and networking in different nations, and so you set those things up. One of the best companies in the world at marketing themselves is the Coca-Cola company. Coca-Cola has reached more places than many uh, actual nations have reached. For example, we've got some pictures here of the Coca-Cola company uh, in uh, Korea and in Saudi Arabia, countries that uh, you can have a very hard time getting into for different things. Brian actually told us, we were talking about this in our preaching team this week, he said that he knows of tribes in Africa who will have bottles of Coke delivered and they'll bury them in the sand to keep them cold. People think that upwards of 95% of the world know the logo of Coca-Cola. Even if they don't understand the whole company, they know that symbol, they know that logo. Isn't it amazing that they can do that? One Coke executive actually said, my experience with the Coca-Cola company has changed my life. I've seen and experienced things that only Coca-Cola could do. What a strange statement for a business executive. It sounds like it could come right out of God's word, doesn't it? To be part of something that they could see only this person, this company, this organization do. Now, if we were to turn and look at Jesus and ask, what did Jesus do to start his global movement? What did Jesus put in place? Who did Jesus go to to start his global movement? I think we'd be surprised that it doesn't look like many of the different organizations around us. It doesn't look like what we would expect it to be. Because what was Jesus' idea to change the world was you. Jesus chose regular men and women like you and I to be a part of the way of witness, to minister the message of the gospel and the hope of salvation and redemption to all the nations of the earth. So today, this morning, we're going to look at a story set about 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. We're going to look at Jesus' calling to his disciples. Look at this way of witness. I want to start from Acts chapter 1. This is how the book of Acts starts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, just a couple of details here. This is uh, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. He's giving his final instructions to his followers. And as the author of this book, Acts, uh, records, it's a guy named Luke, he says the very first words of this book is, in the first book, O Theophilus. Well, what's the first book? You may not know, but Acts is a sequel. It's a sequel to another book that you'll find in your Bibles, the Gospel of Luke. And we actually, this character, Theophilus, who Luke mentions at the start of Acts, is also mentioned in Luke. This is what Luke 1 reads. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now the reason I wanted to take a quick detour into this before we get into our sermon this morning is the two texts, uh, Luke and Acts, work together as part of a wider message of who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and then what happened after his resurrection. And the whole of the two books are written, it seems, by Luke to his friend Theophilus to give him an orderly account of what he'd experienced and what he'd saw. Luke was a very intelligent man. Some think that uh, he was Paul's personal physician because he was a doctor. And so he was kind of expertly placed to be able to write gospel accounts because he was so good at collecting details. And even in the beginning of Luke, as you just heard, he talks about having gathered together different sources. And you can actually see in Luke's gospel, many of the uh, parts of Luke's gospel are taken from uh, the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark. So there's very words that he starts his gospel with. We see it take place. He's putting together an account, putting together a testimony of who Jesus is. And why is he sending it to his friend Theophilus? Well, Theophilus, we think, was probably some kind of Roman official. He has this title, or excellent Theophilus. But we know at the very least that Theophilus was a man who wanted to hear the story of Jesus. Luke writes that. He tells us he wants to give him an orderly account. He wants to give him testimony of the things that he's heard about Jesus. And so these two books form really the basis of what should be true for all of us, that we want to be a group of people, a family of followers that want to give an orderly account of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished to people who need to hear it. Because there are many Theophiluses amongst us, men and women who are waiting to hear the story of Jesus. And so Jesus chooses witnesses. And this is what he tells them in Acts 1, starting in verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's a strange moment because the disciples, they're trying to figure out what this all means for their lives. Jesus' miracles, his death, his resurrection, his claims, what does it mean next? 
Is he going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is he going to dispense with the Romans? Is he going to bring power to the Jewish people? And what Jesus says to them is, I don't want you to focus on that. It's not for you to know. What I want your focus on is my calling to you to be my witnesses. See, many of us are very, very concerned about what God is going to do for us. What's he going to do next? What's the future going to look like? But I wonder if we pay attention to Jesus here, we realize that we should be spending more time asking, what has God asked of us? Not what do we ask of him, but what has he asked of us? To be his witnesses, to have our minds and our hearts focused on the present, on making his story known. So I want to examine these final words this morning. I want to look at the way of witness because it entails three things for us. Three things that I think can encourage us and bring us hope and purpose. It entails a purpose, a power, and a promise. The way of witness entails a purpose, a power, and a promise. And I want to remind us that what we talk about this morning, what we examine, is not simply for pastors, it's not for evangelists, it's not just for missionaries like Amanda. This is a calling that rests on the shoulders of everyone who would call themselves a follower of Jesus. And I hope that that rightly intimidates you this morning because that's a high calling, but the word of God also has hope for you. Even as you might feel intimidation, even as you might feel some trepidation about that calling, know that God has encouragement for you. And the first thing that he has is a purpose. A purpose. Monday was Halloween, which if you've got uh, small children like I do, you know it's Halloween because your children tell you it's Halloween for about three weeks before. And then you get all your costumes ready, you get everything ready, you go out. But the reason I like Halloween is because I get to put the dad tax on my kids. If you don't know what the dad tax is, it's after they've gone out and they've collected a giant box full of candy, you get to take a cut of that. And depending on uh, how generous you feel, you can have a smaller cut, but I, I like to take a big cut. And in fact, last year's haul of Halloween candy lasted me till August, so I was very happy about that. But inevitably, some houses are a lot more generous than others, and you get uh, some houses that will give you entire bags like this one. Uh, a bag of uh, family-sized milk chocolate peanut M&Ms. Now, I'm not psyched about peanut M&Ms, but milk chocolate ones I'll take. But in, and you notice it says family size on that bag. Uh, it doesn't say family size to me, it says Andrew size. I love to just sit on the couch, I'll watch a show, read a book, and I'll just have that bag, and I can polish one off in one night. Now, that is probably not a good idea for my long-term health. And it's just not a good idea. Even the people who produce these, they write on their family size. This is not meant for one person. Do you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is family size? It's not meant for us alone. It's not meant to be something that we take, the good news of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, and hold on to for ourselves. It's designed, it's given to us to be shared. It's given to us to be multiplied out beyond us. Jesus says as much. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I think even if we went back to the book of Genesis, it's clear that God's intention for human beings, for you and I, is to be his witnesses. We're created in his image, which means that at all times we are reflecting something about God, who God is. And what Jesus does is he comes, the perfect image of the invisible God, and he gives us the clearest, most perfect picture of God and tells us, now I want you to go and show the rest of the earth who I am and what I've done. 
That's why we always say at Chapel Street, we want to be a church not for ourselves, but for our neighbors, because our calling as followers of Jesus is not to exist for ourselves, not to hoard and consume the good news for ourselves, but to let it go beyond us, to reach our neighbors with hope and good news. Do you know that the, the word for witness is a Greek word, matus? It's where we get our English word, martyrs. Because what does a martyr do? A martyr gives their life for a cause, lays their life down for a cause. Today is the day of prayer for the persecuted church. And so there are quite literally around the earth men and women who are laying their life down so that the good news of Jesus would be shared with others. So that people might hear about this one who's loved them. But even here in America, where that's rather unlikely for us, it's still true that we should be laying our life down. We should be martyrs of a sort who say we want all of our lives to be given for the sake of others knowing Christ. We want them to see who he is and what he's done. That's our purpose. Now you would imagine that if that's going to be our purpose, Jesus has some kind of training plan for his disciples. Because remember that his followers were largely a group of blue-collar uh, fishermen, people like that, that weren't really schooled in how to do this well. But Jesus doesn't offer that to them. It seems that Jesus assumes they already have what they need to do this task. He simply says, you will be my witnesses. I've chosen you for this task. That means is that to be witnesses, we don't need to have all the answers. There's much that the apostles and disciples still didn't fully understand. But they were ready to be his witnesses. It's because the world doesn't need clever arguments or religious zealots. It needs people transformed by grace who've experienced the love of God for themselves to simply go out and to love their neighbors. To share what's been done for you. In fact, the more that you share what's been done for you, the more that you'll understand that grace for yourself. One of my favorite letters in the New Testament is a letter called Philemon, very short, just one chapter. And in that, Philemon writes this. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Philemon's point is, we know Jesus better by fulfilling the purpose that Jesus gave us. By sharing the love of God with others, you'll better understand the love of God for yourself. Paul Tripp, one of my favorite pastors, he says that the position God has chosen for us in the work of his kingdom is an amazing thing. All of his children have a mind-boggling calling, but sadly many of them don't understand their position. And because they don't, they're quite comfortable being consumers and timid when it comes to being instruments. You don't need to be a timid witness. You don't need to be fearful of the calling to go and make Jesus known. Jesus isn't looking for timid witnesses. In fact, he gives a pretty audacious mission to his disciples. He tells them that he wants them to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, if I was to put up a map here, it'll show you Jerusalem in the center, moving outward to some of the other places that was reached within the lifetime of the apostles, the furthest one out there being Rome. I imagine the disciples, when they heard this call, they would have heard Jerusalem. Great, that's fantastic. We're already here. This is an amazing story. Let's do it. They would have heard Judea. Perfect. We've been waiting all of our lives for the Messiah. Everybody in Judea needs to hear this. And then Jesus says Samaria, and the disciples say, hold up. We don't like the people who live in Samaria. 
Those are outside of the people of God. We don't, we don't want them to hear this good news of forgiveness and mercy and grace. The Jewish people had a, an incredible enmity with Samarians, and yet Jesus says, I want them to hear too. I want you to be witnesses not only to the people like you that you agree with, I want you to be my witnesses to people who you think are far from me. And then even beyond that, he says the ends of the earth, and at this point the disciples say, how can we possibly do that? Jesus knows his mission for them. He has confidence in that mission for them. It is intentional that God designs a purpose for us and a mission for us that is beyond what we think we are capable of so that we will trust him and so that we will look to him. And what we can look on at these disciples and say, perhaps they did feel intimidated and yet even now, today we sit in this church because they chose to trust Jesus and to be his witnesses. Will we have that same confidence in Christ that they had? Will the next generation hear from us the good news of who Jesus is? I can tell you haven't worked in student ministries, there are generations after us that desperately need the good news of who Christ is. And it is our calling, it is our purpose as the people of God to share that with them. You are witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to your own hometown, to your own area, to the people right on your doorstep, to the neighbors across the street from you. You are God's intended missionary. Witness is local, it's global, it's spoken, it's lived, but it needs power. It needs power to work. Yesterday I was uh, putting a new bed together for my uh, two youngest sons, Ben and, and Calvin. Calvin has grown a little bit bigger, so we got rid of his crib and we're getting him a toddler bed. And so I brought up everything upstairs and then I come to uh, kind of start putting it together. I had my power drill and put it in and the battery's dead. I got nothing. So it's, it's fair enough. I go and get my screwdriver and I, I start working on it that way. And probably within about five minutes, I thought I had been running a marathon. I'm sweating. It's horrendous. I had forgotten how hard it is to do without a power tool. And I, I just, the whole time I was wishing, I wished that that power drill would have just been charged up so I could get this done. You know, if you attempt to go out and to witness, to, to be part of the way of witness without the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll feel a lot the same. You'll feel tired, you'll feel worn down, you'll feel defeated. Because witness was not intended to be done by you alone. It was intended to be done in partnership with God's Spirit. That's why Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. To be what Jesus calls them to be, they will require supernatural power in their lives, a power far beyond them. There's no way that this handful of blue-collar, uneducated fishermen should be able to make the impact that they did, and yet it happened. It happened explosively. In fact, that Greek word for power that Jesus uses is dunamis, which is where we get dynamite. The Spirit did bring an explosive power to their witness. We're told in the beginning of Acts that the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon them. They go out, Peter preaches, and thousands came to follow Jesus. They were proclaiming the gospel in other earthly languages that they couldn't possibly have known. Miracles was happening amongst them. But it's not just miracles. Peter himself, who, as we've mentioned a couple of times now, was an uneducated man, became this incredibly eloquent speaker. This man who was fearful at Jesus' own crucifixion and ran away, stood boldly in front of religious leaders and people from all over the area and proclaimed this incredible message because the Holy Spirit had transformed him, given him a confidence that he didn't have on his own. 
In Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. His point is is that to, to be a witness, it's not about having clever arguments. It's not about being the smartest in the room. It's about trusting the spirit who works through you. And not only trusting the spirit who works in you, but the spirit who's already in work in the hearts of people around you. One of my favorite stories in scripture is in Acts 17 where Paul visits an area and he notices that they have a statue to an unknown God. And he writes this in Acts 17. I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul tells these people, I'm a witness to this God that you don't know. I see that there's already some level of truth, some understanding you have of someone beyond yourselves, and I'm here to tell you who that is. Do you know that right now the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of people all around you, and all that they are waiting for is for you to come and help them understand that, to help them see where the Spirit's already at work. Jesus himself says about the Holy Spirit, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. See, Jesus is actually saying the spirit of God in you is better than the son of God beside you. I don't understand that. But nevertheless, I have to admit it's true. Because when the Spirit came, the church exploded. I don't understand why it's better for me that the Son of God would be away, but it is. The Spirit does what we cannot do. It reaches people that we can't reach. It moves people in ways that we can't move them. Do you know what that means for us? It means that you and I don't convert anyone. We don't convince anyone. All we do is highlight the work of the Spirit. That should free you up to know it doesn't rest on your shoulders whether someone comes to know Christ or not. It is not your work that grows the church. It's God's. In essence, in some ways, we could even think of being a witness as being a a, a faithful spectator to the work of God. You're simply making note of what he's doing. You're acknowledging what he's doing. You're highlighting it in the lives of people around you. Jesus said that the fields are white. That the work of the Spirit is so incredible that there are people right now out there just waiting to hear the good news of Jesus. Isn't that very different to how we normally think of culture in our day? We think that the world around us is hostile to the gospel. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know about it. Yeah, I've read many studies that say uh, people in our own midst, if we were to ask them to come to church, they would say yes. They're just waiting for people to ask them. We've got to change our mindset to be more like the one that Christ offered to us. That the fields are white, but the laborers are few. That if we would go out, the Spirit is already planting seeds, already growing what needs to be harvested. All we're doing is going out and finding it. The last thing that we see in this that I think brings us great encouragement in witness is that there is a promise. We have a purpose, we have a power, and we have a promise. We're told in Acts 1, 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. The promise is twofold. The promise amidst our witness is twofold. It's that Jesus is with us and it's that he will come again. Now I love this moment in scripture. It's a strange one. It's one of those few that you get to really chuckle to yourself because what happens is that Jesus literally ascends into the skies and disappears in the clouds. And then two angels, no less, appear next to his followers and say, what are you all looking at? Now, if I was one of those men, I would probably reply to that angel if I was feeling bold. Maybe it's the man that just disappeared into the sky. Maybe that's what I'm looking at. (laughs) And yet the angels seem perplexed by this. They seem to say to the disciples, you don't need to put your attention on that. He's coming back. You don't need to be distracted by that. We've got work to do. Remember what he told you, to be his witnesses, that his spirit is coming. The point is that we have a job to do. So let's get to it because he's coming back. He's coming back. Christ knows his job. Do we know ours? In Matthew 28, another kind of account of Jesus' final words to his disciples, he gives them what's called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18, he says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's the promise. He's present. He has all authority. Jesus is saying, I know your fears. I know your doubts. I know your lack of confidence in yourselves, but I have all authority. Everything has been laid at my feet and I'm sending you. I will be with you. I will be present with you. I don't send you out on your own. I don't send you out as orphans. Jesus is ruling. He's reigning. There really doesn't need to be anything standing between us and our calling to be his witnesses. There is no fear, no doubt that we could bring up that would be sufficient to say maybe we're not the right choice. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ, who is sending us. This is why, in Philemon that we mentioned earlier, he can write that he prays that the sharing of our faith would have its full effect so that we would see the power of Christ. You know, there's been a few occasions in my life where I've I've got to see some amazing ways in which God has reached people I didn't think could be reached. One of them was in the life of one of my own family members who I never would have thought would have been interested in Christ. And yet we get onto a conversation. He asked me about what I believed and why I believed it. And by the end of that conversation, someone who I never thought would ever come to Christ was praying to receive Jesus as his Lord. Now I don't tell you that story because I think I'm fantastic, because I'm not. That doesn't happen to me very often. I'm telling you that story because in that moment, I had an awareness and a visibility of God's power to do things I never thought he could do, to reach people I never thought he could reach. And my hope for us as a church is that we would put our confidence in that God and that we would reach out knowing that God wants to reach them more than we do. God wants to touch lives more than we do. Jesus is coming back. There is a clock that is ticking down. I don't know when that day will be, but it's coming. And so we have a limited time. 
We want our focus not to be on the things that we don't know, but the things that we do. We want to reach people. We want to share with them the story of this Jesus. This Jesus, born of a virgin, who laid in a manger. This Jesus who walked amongst us and knew our sufferings and our burdens. This Jesus who multiplied loaves, who turned water into wine, who raised the dead, healed the blind, made the lame walk. This Jesus who taught and served crowds of people, who would travel to a cross and conquer death and sin and darkness. This Jesus who now sits at the right hand of God, who intercedes for you and I, praying for us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. This Jesus who holds all things together by the word of his power, who is himself the radiance of all God's glory. And this Jesus who told you, I will be with you. It's easy to forget when we come to church regularly and we we go through the motions that even now as we gather, the presence of the God of creation is with us. That even now as you sit in your seats, the one who made you and formed you in your mother's womb is present here, alive. He's not a character from history. He's alive. And he is at work in you so that the people around you would see him. I do not feel confident in my ability to be a witness. I doubt myself constantly. Am I smart enough? Am I eloquent enough? And am I kind enough? Am I generous tonight? Is my life put together enough? Do you know who doesn't have any insecurity about your calling as a witness? Do you know who never doubts one day your calling as a witness? Jesus. There's never been one day where Jesus has doubted your ability to do what he has sent you to do. Because he knows who he is. He knows the power of his spirit, the grace of his spirit, and he's given that to you. He knows that you have everything you need. The truth is, my dear friends, is that there are people around you that the spirit is at work in. They're moving in their lives and they are waiting for a word from you. They're waiting to hear about the one who loves them, who's tender and gentle and merciful, lowly. They're waiting to hear. The fields are white. So our choice today is to trust his purpose, to trust his power, and to trust his promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this great calling that you've placed on us, Lord. We do feel often inadequate, but God, we are in awe that you would have such confidence. We shouldn't be because you know who you are and we should know who you are, but Lord, you want to work in our lives. What humbling thing to know that you want to reach the ends of the earth, that you want a global movement through men and women like us. God, help us to trust you. Help us to see you and understand you. Help us to put our confidence in your grace in our lives. And Lord, may we reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth so that they might see you as we now see you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just before the benediction, let me remind you, if you are newer to Chapel Street and would like to um, say hello, just meet me out in the lobby area. I'll be out by the uh, newcomer's table uh, in just a few minutes. Receive now the benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus, who died and rose again for our salvation and has called us and empowered us to be his witnesses. Amen. Have a great day.